All right, we might as well go ahead and get started. Hopefully we will have more people coming in, but we'll just be a cozy group of folks here today, that's, and that's fine. Um, thank you for joining us. I think we have a, a really a good topic, a good presentation lined up for you. Um, if, just to make sure you're in the right place, this is Bayer 2403-2403, Smart Manufacturing, the Future of Making is Digital. So just before we get started, uh, we know that we'll get into some of the new innovations that, that manufacturing um, is, has been able to see, some of the exciting things like metaverse, digital twin. We'll get into all of that in a few minutes. But before we do, we'd like to go over to a couple of logistics. First of all, my name is Rick Wilson. I work for Northrop Grumman Corporation. I'm a system engineer and a project management, uh, project manager, excuse me. And you can see my full bio, if you, and as long as, as well as the rest of our team members, by downloading the app um, at uh, Career Communications Group. And you'll be able to, to see not only that, but other information regarding BEA. Uh, the other thing that we, we wanted to mention is that you can rate this seminar. And so this uh, enables BEA to collect that information so that they can do future planning and see what types of inf information you'd like to see next year and the years uh, thereafter. Um, we also wanted to mention to you that this will be interactive. So if you have questions, please uh, be, have those ready and we'll try to provide an answer for you. Um, uh, this is not going to be virtual this year. It'll just be uh, physical people here physically only. And then the last thing I wanted to mention is that you can receive continuing education uh, units for this session. If you stop by the Morgan State University booth right outside in the hallway, they can give you the paperwork so you can turn that information in and get your uh, career uh, uh, continuing educational units. Okay, so with that being said, um, We'd like to uh, introduce our team members. And so, Bob, if you would like to start. All right, thanks, Rick. So, good afternoon. I'm Bob Saka. Um, I'm also with Northrop Grumman. I've been with Northrop Grumman for 15 years. Uh, I began my career doing uh, software uh, integration, and then I transitioned into program management. I've held various roles in program management, and now I, I run a, a factory for Northrop Grumman. Uh, it's about 430 people, and we support the Navy, specifically the, uh, the nuclear Navy. Uh, we have over uh, 40 programs um, that we run. It's in Sykesville, Maryland. Um, so that's my day job. My part-time job is I'm still in the Army, so I began my career. Um, I did ROTC in college, and then uh, went active duty. I was in a uh, Special Forces unit. I was in much better shape back then. And uh, I transitioned from active duty to uh, the National Guard. And I, I've been in the Army now 23 years. I, um, just until actually yesterday, I was assigned to the White House as a reservist. And now um, I'm going to be teaching at the U.S. Army War College. Thank you, Bob. Hi, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Deirdre Peters. I am with Lockheed Martin Corporation. I've been with Lockheed Martin a little over 25 years, and I started out with in networking, telecommunications, transitioned over to cybersecurity. I also did acquisitions and divestitures for a period of time, conducted corporate internal audits specifically around cybersecurity, and now I'm currently a digital transformation program manager. And in this role, I'm basically responsible for helping our programs, captures, and proposal teams to transform, utilizing different capabilities such as the digital twin, model-based systems engineering, so that we can remain competitive. Thank you, Deidre. So now we'd like to continue with our uh, program. We'd first like to ask our, our team members here some questions, so I'll start with Bob. Bob, can you kind of give us some experience uh, that you faced and some of the background that you have with uh, smart manufacturing? Yeah, and I'll, I'll begin just by introducing the slide. So first I'll give you the textbook, textbook answer, and then I'll give you my personal response. So why are we here today? It's really two reasons. One is to explore the phases uh, of smart manufacturing. And then uh, second is to evaluate or, or discuss um, innovative technology empowering green initiatives. And with green initiatives, I, I break it down into two parts. First is sustainability. So when you think of sustainability, um, uh, a good example is like renewable energy, putting like so solar panels uh, on your roof or on, on your factory. The other part of it, I, I like to think about it, is improving efficiency in, in the entire manufacturing life cycle. And I, 
I break that down into three subcategories. One is uh, funding, uh, people, and then product to market. So how do you think of an idea and get it out to the market um, a, a, as soon as we can? So that's kind of the textbook answer of, of the smart manufacturing process. I like to think of smart manufacturing process as a, as a communications platform. And when you think of it as a communications platform, how do you, how do you begin with the design, the manufacturing, and then the market? How, how do you bring those three key components together? So again, design, manufacturing, and then the market, and how do you improve that life cycle? And improving that life cycle is making it more, more efficient, uh, re reducing cost, and getting that product out uh, to the market uh, as soon as possible. So. All right, thank you, Bob. So to, as a segue to that, um, Deidre will ask you the next question. What type of tools in smart manufacturing have you seen applied uh, within your experience and background? Yeah, sure. So piggybacking off of what Bob indicated about the life cycle, from my experience with Lockheed Martin, what we're doing is we are integrating smart manufacturing in the entire life cycle. So a tool that we're utilizing is Siemens Accelerator. And basically this tool will allow us to be faster, be more innovative, help our programs to be able to execute and reduce costs overall so that we can deliver those innovative products and solutions to our customers. Uh, in addition to that, Lockheed Martin has also built four smart factories to basically allow us to incorporate components of IoT to, again, to deliver those products and services. So we have capabilities for our classified environments. There are several tools for the joint strike fighter and a few missile products that we make. And as part of that, we've incorporated the intelligent factory framework. We've also incorporated robotics as capabilities from a manufacturing perspective in that area. Excellent. Thank you. And then to kind of piggyback off of that from an engineering standpoint, uh, Bob mentioned the life cycle. Um, if you think about a product that goes from birth until it, its disposal. So basically, if you want to have smart manufacturing implemented into your life cycle uh, system, uh, you know, for the benefit, for efficiency, to make sure that you have the, the most um, dynamic unit that, that you're building, uh, you have to bring in, bring that uh, to the left. So bring that into your requirements development. Make sure that uh, your manufacturing um, capabilities, they have a requirement so it can be traced all throughout the life cycle of the system. Um, you know, we have major design reviews like system requirements reviews, SRR, um, make, making sure that you have subject matter ex experts in that room so that they can take a look and make sure that, you know, as, as you go through that life cycle, you're going to get what you, at the end, what you thought you would get, what you planned to get as well as as you go through PDR, preliminary design review, uh, critical design review, uh, CDR, um, that you line all of those gates, those design gates, up with the manufacturing gates, which are like uh, PRR, or production readiness reviews. So but by doing this, you can make sure that, that whole life cycle uh, is efficient, and at the end, you won't have as many discrepancies and, and um, uh, uh, escapes. Hey, Rick, we, we have some time. I was going to give a, um, an example. Maybe, maybe if you go to the next slide, too, that, that, that will help. Uh, but before I do, I saw there was a question. If there are questions, they, we have a, just go up to the microphone so others can hear you. Since we're talking about smart manufacturing, uh, do you foresee a time when we don't have sort of these gates that we go through, but that quality is kind of iteratively kind of baked in versus having like, you know, PDRs and CDRs? Yeah, I look at it as, are you taking an agile approach versus the waterfall approach? And I, I, I think you're always going to have those type of design reviews, but how, how you integrate it uh, in the product life cycle and product design uh, will change, and it has changed. Um, so yeah, you're not going to design for a year and then go through a CDR and then design for another year. I, I think it is iterative, and we're seeing that with, with uh, the agile methods that we're incorporating. So the short answer is yes. And one reason, just to piggyback off of that uh, answer, uh, we work with the military, with the government, and so as the environment changes, you know, the government's usually a little bit slower, behind the, the curve a little bit, but as they start to see the benefits of Agile and doing things in parallel and doing, doing things faster, then that's what will make the change. So the slide that's in front of us right now, it's the manufacturing base, basics, or, or the, the um, smart manufacturing life cycle. So engineering, sustainability, demand, enterprise systems, production, and supply chains. 
So I, I know when I was in school, I always appreciated the professors that gave me real world examples versus just reading from the textbook, right? So uh, I want to ask everyone to take out their, their cell phone and you're going to do a Google search for me. And the first person that, that can find it, you're going to come up to the mic and we'll, we'll, we'll walk through it. So I, I want you to take out, uh, do a search, oops, sorry, and then just type in my name. So first name is Bob. And the last name is Saka, S-A-C-C-A, and then the word Navy, N-A-V-Y. And you should see an article titled, Northrop Grumman Makes Play to Add Power, Space on DDGs for Weapons. So raise your hand if you see that article. Okay, good. So almost all of you found it. So if, if you click on that article, it's, a, it's an article that was published by Defense Times. If you're in the defense industry, you're probably familiar with, with Defense Times. This was published uh, I don't know, about two or three weeks ago. And if you scroll halfway through the article, you'll, there's quotes from me in there, and there's quotes, and, and they talk about a, a digital twin, a, a digital twin that Northrop Grumman invested in uh, for the past year. Um, so, I guess the, the first question is, you know, wh why, why would we make this investment? Yeah, exactly. And for this in, in here, it's saying to, to model in real time to have that iterative feedback. And that's essentially the case. Remember when I introduced smart manufacturing, I discussed, it's, I think of it as a communications platform. And you, you look at most organizations, what's the number one issue that most organizations have? It's communicating, right? So when it comes to manufacturing, there's, it's exactly the same. So what we did last year, we made a large investment, a multi-million dollar investment in a a digital twin and this particular digital twin it, it's used for the Navy and it's used for um, uh, power conversion technology so so what, what does that mean so think of uh, power conversion think of it as a, a power substation in your neighborhood so you know you, you have your, your power grid and each every neighborhood has a substation so we developed the power substation on the destroyers, on, on Navy ships. We developed the power substation on the aircraft carriers, on, on the submarines. And what's happening as the threat environment changes, uh, the Navy, they need more and more capabilities. But when you, when you need more and more capabilities, that's more radars, more electronic war, warfare systems, uh, more weapons, lasers. But what's the number one limitation is power. Um, so how do we take the power that they have now and, and make it more efficient? And to do this, it, it takes, you know, it take 10, 15 years to actually produce something, but we, we can create a digital twin in, in a year. Now, when I say digital twin, there's multiple iterations of a digital twin or multiple, um, uh, say, levels of maturity of a digital twin. In the simplest form, we, we use a, a digital twin, we can put it on the iPad and we take it to a customer and we can say, hey, based on, on the threat environment, and right now with the Navy and with the, the United States, the threat environment, you're, look, you're looking at Russia and, 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 and Russia and, and, uh, and China. From there, they decide which weapons are needed, what, what are their, their shortfalls, what are their gaps, and then what ships or what platforms in the fleet will, will take that. So they, they look at this from a system engineering approach. And then they say, well, if I want all these weapon systems, I want these radars, I want the, these electronic warfare systems on my ship, how do I handle it from a power perspective? In the past, it would be years and years and years uh, of, of design, years and years and years of engineering. What we did is we created one version where we essentially put it on the iPad and we, have, we go to our customers and we have that discussion with our customers and we can, we can load those requirements in and through our model, through our digital twin, we, we can in real time help develop solutions um, before years before we start manufacturing it. So that's that's one part of the digital twin. The other part of the digital twin is, is using it in test. So in the past, when you get into the integration and test phase of a, of a program, you're really dependent on the hardware. Well, get, getting that hardware is expensive. Um, it's limited. Usually that hardware is, is for production, meaning it's going to go out to the fleet or go out to the Navy or whatever, whoever your customer is. Now what we can do with more advanced models of our digital twin, we, we can take that and, and, and conduct testing, hardware and loop testing, whatever type of testing you need to do. It's that mature where we're, we're not dependent on the hardware. We're not depending on the manufacturing life cycle years before we can introduce that in, into the, the, our analysis and our test cycle to, um, to, to make real-time decisions on how we want to produce our products. 
I'd like to add to that. So Lockheed Martin's perspective as it pertains to a digital twin is focused on data. Everything's data driven. And the fact that we are able to twin what we're doing in the physical sense and be able to access that real time is what's going to help us to be able to be able to meet our customers' requirements and their demands. Uh, there was one item that I wanted to bring reference to is that um, from a digital twin perspective as it pertains to Lockheed Martin, it means to us that the twins is a living single source of truth, which is uh, of real data. It's not just a model or simulation in that basically this adds value to the system driven of real data and that the twin is continuously informing each other of the life of the system. So we found, if you guys can elaborate on this a little bit, so have we found that um, the producibility of the item, whether it be data or some type of hardware or software, um, there's less defects, there's better efficiency at the, when you do start the manufacturing process? Yeah, yeah I was thinking about this um, earlier today, actually, during lunch. So I, when I first began you know, designing and working at Northrop we, was 15 years ago, we, we didn't know what the end design would look like. We had similar twos. Uh, we had products that we built before um, that were, say, close enough. But the issue that we ran into, and, and before I worked Navy programs, I spent 10 year, over 10 years working space programs, is the, 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 the cycle time, the long lead time that we, of getting parts in. So what we would do, we would, we would spend large amounts of money, 10, 15 million dollars, buying parts, and we may use half of them, we may not use half of them, but we, but because it took so long for them to come in, uh, we, we had to make a decision now, and it was cheaper for us to spend, make that investment now versus waiting later on and, and delaying the program. What, what I've, I've seen with us incorporating more of a digital twin model is that we're not wasting those dollars on parts that we don't need. We, we, we know up front exactly what we need, um, and it's, it's significant cost savings. So we're making an investment up front in the, in the tools, in the training, in the onboarding into these new models um, and, and using digital twins, but the return on investment is, is much higher because you're, you're saving it um, on, on the back end. Yeah. yeah, and I'll just add to that um, in regard to being able to have that predictive insight, having that digital twin, you're able to evaluate the design trade-offs in advance, for especially for programs that are already in execution or even ones that are in the process of being uh, evaluated on. And I think that's the overall key and mission to the operational decisions that we have to make. Hey guys, my name is Ibrahim, and um, when you're talking about the digital twin, uh, what sources, uh, what software or tools are you using to develop it? Is it, is it just, a, like you said, it's not just a model or a design? Um, what are you using? Yeah, so there's multiple tools. Like the, the example I gave you, um, and that's in that article, it, it really began in MATLAB. That's how we started, uh, and then from there it, it expands. But yeah, the, the tools are, are, are endless. It really depends on the person, the the application, um, what your the end state is. The, you know, the end state for a version of the digital twin may be just communicating with the customer, and um, but an, another end state maybe you're actually going to use it in, in place of hardware. Uh, but the particular example was MATLAB. So we'll move to the next question. So we know that the topic of green, being green, or green methodologies, environment, um, keeping it safe, is very important these days. So Deidre, is there some, are there some examples that you can give that your company is using um, to reduce waste? Yeah, so Lockheed Martin actually started our Go Green initiative back in 2007. And so that's a part of our sustainability report. We are, it, it's important, it's critical to our core values as it pertains to the environment, the communities, as well as the products and services that we're delivering. In addition to that, the four factories, smart factories that we just built are basically integral to our sustainability report. So it's in, it's integrated into the process, the facility, the people. We have enabled technology to allow our workforce to be more smart on how they're implementing technology, how they're using technology in their workspace. And so as it pertains to going green, we've been doing it for several, over a decade or more now, and it's just a part of the way that we do business. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, nothing more. Nothing more? Okay. So we all know it's an important topic, so thank you for, and, our, and Northrop does too. We have our own green, <laughs> our own green initiatives that we uh, delve into as well. 
Um, so we'll move on to the next question. And so we'll talk a little bit about some of the challenges. So, so Bob, can you kind of expand on some of the challenges that you may face when going into a smart manufacturing effort? Yeah, so run, running a, a factory for Northrop Grumman, uh, there's, there's challenges every day. And I, I say if, if, there, if we didn't have any challenges, I, I wouldn't have a job. Like uh, the factory would run itself. The, um, so there's a couple things that, that I wrote down. The, the first is uh, 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 adaption or adopting of, uh, of new systems. And many of our engineers, many of our operators, technicians um, uh, that work in the factory, they, they've been there. Um, some of them have been there longer than a lot of us have been alive, 30, 40, um, some, some even 50 years. And trying to get them to change um, is hard. And, and we do it, um, and it's about, you know, to me, it's basic leadership and explaining the why, why we're doing it. And then after you explain the why we're doing it, is ensuring that we're making the investment in it. And you're not, you're not going to be able to transition overnight. It's going to take months, e even years. And that investment is, is uh, it's difficult uh, from a, a time perspective because the folks don't have a lot of time, but also from, from resources. You, you need money. You need money to buy the software and the licenses you need money to to train them so that that initial onboarding that initial training is the the most difficult part but after after you get past that folks start to realize the you know why we're doing this and the importance of it and how it's going to help and help them the the next thing and, and uh, Deirdre can probably speak a little bit more to this than I can is the integration of systems. So we, we think about digital transformation, and we, we, there's so many different systems from what we use from a from a from a business development perspective to an engineering perspective, to from a financial perspective, and everything in between. And how, how do we make all of that work together? It, the end state is it will all work together, um, but it's it's very hard to integrate those type of systems. And I know Deirdre does that for Lockheed at the, at the corporate level and has, has some re relevant experience there. And then the last thing I already spoke about was, was the training and onboarding um, part of it, especially for folks who've been designing and, um, and manufacturing for, for many years, just trying to get them to, to change. Yeah. yeah. So I'll add to that uh, with regard to digital transformation. So for us, you know, we are trying to ensure that the warfighter has everything that they need to be successful when they're in the field. And so the different systems are not our business processes, they're the tools and capabilities that we're trying to design in a more smart manner in our smart factory so that the warfighter at the end of the day gets that product at, in their hands while they're in the field. We're looking at it to ensure that we can, can remain competitive, that we're enabling our customers to be able to transform. And while Bob mentioned that it is hard, it is a mindset change, but I think it starts with the individual, it starts with our leadership that taking ownership that this is how we're going to do business going forward so that we're able to integrate it as a part of our day-to-day -day responsibilities. Excellent. So as we move forward into this digital age, there'll have to be better interfaces that will help all of these systems to talk to each other and communicate. So uh, going on to the next question then, Deidre will ask this one to you. Uh, what are some of the new innovations that you've seen applied uh, within the smart uh, manufacturing methodology? Yeah, one example that I can share is that we are definitely using AR and VR, augmented reality and virtual reality to demonstrate to our customers the capabilities of, for example, switching out a part. I know Bob mentioned that earlier that if you have a part and you're able to demonstrate that you have the part number, you can swap it out and be able to show that the system is still operational as it needs to be while you're utilizing it. That, that's one example. Uh, some of the challenges there are making sure that we have that part number. Our customers are us utilizing a tool called uh, Haystack. I mean, some of you may be familiar with that from a military perspective. And just ensuring that we have an interface into that tool so that we have the insight of the part number so that it doesn't slow us down. We can be more efficient in being able to swap out those parts in, in certain instances that we need to. Um, that, that's one example I can share. <laughs> if there are any questions, we can talk further about that. Anybody have any questions about that? Hi, how's it going? Hi. Uh, my name is Greg McMurtry. I had a question. I know you just talked about switching parts, um, but smart manufacturing, do you have any examples for repairability or preventative maintenance and how that works with this versus more of a traditional manufacturing approach? Repairability or preventative maintenance. 
can't think of one example right now as far as um, preventative maintenance, but repairability, yes. So that example that I provided is that if we are aware and we have data that demonstrates that a part may be going bad or what have you, that example that I just provided, we would be able to model that in an AR environment to be able to see how long it's going to take us to do it. Do we have the right precision to be able to make that swap and real time? Yeah, so that, I don't know if that answered your question or not. Yeah, it does. Okay. Thank okay. you. Yeah, and, and different organizations um, uh, you know, face similar issues. Like uh, I'm real familiar with the Navy because they're, they're most of my customers. And, and right now, the the number one impact to the Navy, to the fleet, is, is sustainment and, and trying to get parts out, out um, and and trying to keep the, the ships out, out at sea. So there's multiple initiatives going on right now. And similar to what Deirdre said, we there's a lot of, um, say, predictive analysis and different tools that we're using. So we, through the tools that we use, we, we know what parts fail the most. Um, so we try to get ahead ahead of that and, and trying to reduce the overall cycle time from when a part um, needs goes down and needs to be repaired to getting some out, out the door. So there's there's multiple examples, multiple tools that we use, but it really comes down to doing that predictive analysis um, on, on various tools. One other thing yeah. I want to add is the relationships that we have with our suppliers. So Lockheed Martin has a supplier code of conduct, and I'll just give you a perspective from a cyber perspective is ensuring that our suppliers are not susceptible to attacks so that that doesn't prevent us from getting a part when we need it in a timely fashion. COVID was a prime example of us still being able to deliver our products and services to our customers and not being able to miss time because of those relationships and the high standards that we do set for our suppliers. It's not something that we can force them to do contractually, but it's something that we highly encourage them to do as far as our supplier code of conduct so that we can continue getting our, our products from them that we need. Yeah. And I'm gonna assume this is what, to big up of what Bob said. Uh, using data analytics and some of these other new tools and methodologies that we have uh, will enable for those uh, predictability, like Bob was talking about, the analysis that you have to perform. That, that will help to um, give you a little bit more confidence in when things will fail and what you need to do. There was another question. Yeah. Hi there. I'll try to uh, make this context brief. Uh, my name is Bailey Garfield. I'm a senior at the D University of the District of Columbia studying electrical engineering. Um, I completed a Lockheed Martin Research Fellowship last year in machine learning, okay. and this year I'm doing research in spintronics. Um, I think as an undergraduate, it gives me a more broad perspective of different kinds of engineering than many engineers in the field have because they focus on one thing. And one of the things I've really noticed with machine learning, particularly working with spintronics this year, is you know, the progress, I'm assuming that smart manufacturing relies heavily on machine learning and artificial intelligence, which requires a high level of processing power, increasing amounts, so much so that the, hard, the software is moving at a rate that the hardware is not really able to keep up with. Um, we're actually reaching a point where transistors, which have been increasing at a fairly steady rate, doubling, you can double the amount of transistors you can put on an integrated circuit every 18 months. But we're reaching a point where we have like 40 nanometer scale transistors that cannot be shrunk any further without, you know, changing the physics that operate them because they're moving into the field of quantum mechanics or quantum physics. So my question is, what kind of investments are being made for hardware in order to improve these smart manufacturing processes? And um, how are you, you know, building resiliency against supply chain issues and things of that nature that could, you know, affect your ability to get the hardware that will allow you to implement these smart manufacturing processes. Yeah, so very good question, a couple of ways. So from, from a, a supply chain perspective, so Northrop being a, a large corporation, a you know, Fortune 100 company, we, on an average program that I have, about 60 to 70% of the material is subcontracted out. And of that 60 to 70%, almost 80% of that um, goes to small businesses. So it, it's really working with them. And similar to, I'm sure Lockheed does something similar in, in, in investing in them and investing in their, their processes, investing in their, their technology, and, and investing in their people and, and getting them to, to meet our standards. Because what we're finding is that Northrop, uh, Lockheed, uh, our vendors, they're, they're figuring out how to solve the, the hard problems and they're moving not quite as fast as speed of technology, but we're, we're getting there, we're pretty close. The number one issue that we see is, is, is quality. 
and, and supplier quality and, and staying on top of that and, and, and incorporating that supplier quality um, into the life cycle of the design and into the manufacturing. So it's more on that side that I'm seeing, I see the problems versus trying to keep up with, with the pace of technology. So that, that was like half the question. I know there's another part of your question. Well, it's just that, you know, mm -hmm. like you said, you subcontract to all these smaller companies, mm -hmm. which I would assume puts you at tremendous risk of issues if there are supply chain issues and things of that nature. So what kind of resiliency are you working toward in the long term, making sure that if, if we're moving towards smart manufacturing, there's going to come to a point 10, 15 years down the line where we rely on these processes. We use mm -hmm. them so much, we have, we have mm -hmm. to have them. So what happens in the situation, or what do you need to prepare for a situation where you need technology, you need hardware, but you don't really have a place to get it. Yeah, so we, we, we look at our suppliers, not as suppliers, as, as partners. And it goes back to the first part of how I answer the question and, and making that invest in, investment in them. And investment is not just in, in a financial investment. There's multiple ways to invest in them. So they're, they're very much a core, core part of our business and what we do. And what we're finding is that, um, especially you're studying electrical engineering, you know, when, you, when you're designing something, and uh, it's, you need to design with the end in mind. You need to design to make sure that's producible, that, that, that you can manufacture it. So, so we're seeing now more than ever that our design engineers are working with our manufacturing engineers. And, and right up front, they're working together to ensure that they have a, a producible product. And, and part of that is, is incorporating the suppliers and, and, and not picking the best widget or the best part because it's, it, it works. You pick, picking what's what's available and what's what's common in in the market marketplace. So there's very much an integration now between the design engineering and the manufacturing engineering. And I always like to say, and every year I, I sponsor. Um, God, this year I think we're sponsoring 14 interns at, at, at my site. And the, the number one skill set I, 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 I preach to them is, is a soft skill and is, and the ability to communicate what you're doing. So you can sit behind your desk all day and and you can you can design. Um, the best widget, but if you're not able to communicate that widget, if you're not able to integrate that widget with others, it, it, it's worthless. So the, learning those soft skills in, in school goes a long, long way, and being able to communicate what you're doing go, goes a long way, much more so than being just the smartest engineer in the room. Yeah. So for Lockheed Martin, what we do from a resiliency perspective is that we audit. So we will audit a program, and it will look at their supplier quality, we'll check their cybersecurity ratings, because that for us is a potential entry point in the, in the weakness that could prevent them from delivering a part. And we base it off of risk. So our audits are risk assessed based, and if it's something that's mission critical, uh, it may become an assessment versus an audit, but we'll take that it's factual, it's objective, it's independent, and we have the support, the audit organization has the support of our board of directors so that we know that it's not being influenced by a certain decision or in external factors that could uh, prevent us from being able to be sufficient. So our audit process is very thorough and it's leveraged a lot against our supplier quality, um, I'm sorry, our supplier code of conduct. Yeah. And would some of that, dear Jamil, would some of that uh, also be uh, have the strategies of spares, making sure that you have enough spares and you have enough uh, resiliency? Yeah, spare parts, that's a, <laughs> a fun, fun topic to talk about. From a corporation perspective, we do have processes in place where we can share parts and waiting for parts to be backfilled. So that's also a way for us to be resilient and to ensure that there is no single point of failure and that we're able to continue to deliver our product or service. Yeah. Thank you. Yep, we had another question. Hi, my name is Andrew Lofton. I'm actually um, a manufacturing engineer at Northrop. So, oh, good. One question that I had is you touched on as far as like design and manufacturing engineering. Like you said, we do have a process to make sure that as far as being able to produce something that engineering is coming up with as far as the design is feasible. We have that in place as far as our process. Mm -hmm. As far as smart manufacturing is concerned, is there anything that, and obviously I don't want smart manufacturing to take away my job completely, uh -huh. but, <laughs> but is there anything in place that would be helpful for design to be able to see, oh, well, this will be a constraint as far as just the build process. Um, that may be more nuanced, so I know like as far as just being able to like um, the life cycle or the where everything is on the assembly line, making sure that we have something that's, that's like, let's say the, uh, I'm trying to make sure that I don't say too much, you know. Yeah. Um, 
as far as just the like the structure going down to the subsystems, making sure that everything is aligned so that way we don't have constraints as far as being able to install something, right? Is there an iterative process so that way we can make sure that we take the lessons learned and integrate that into our smart manufacturing? Yeah, I, I think another good question. And I, um, so a couple of years ago, before I was working Navy programs, I, I worked on, um, on space programs. So again, if you, you know, you don't have to do it, but if you want to do it, Google um, um, Space Solar Power Program. Um, and the Space Solar Power Program is a, is a, a program by uh, AFRL, the Air Force uh, Research Lab. And what that does is it takes solar energy, converts it to DC, and then it takes DC energy and converts it to RF, and then it beams it down to the ground. It's pretty cool. And part of that is we, we needed to manufacture uh, solar panels. And, and manufacturing solar, not just one or two or three or four or enough to fill this room. We needed to manufacture a system that had enough solar panels to fill a, a football field uh, over, over 100 yards. Uh, that's a lot. And how, how, how are we going to do that? Because it's never been done before. And um, so what we did, we took folks that, in, in your very position as a manufacturing engineer, and we, we, we used the agile um, design um, approach, and we, we, we paired them with the design engineers. Um, and then we paired them with the design engineers, and there's formal processes we can use, like there's um, like MRL assessments, manufacturing ready level assessments, which you're probably very familiar with. Uh, for, for those that are not as familiar with like MRLs, there's it's um, we, we there's different standards. I, I, I tend to use the the Air Force standard where they they rate how uh, manufacturability your manufacturability of a product, and it's usually like on the one to, to nine scale. And there's different types of um, standards out there, but we tend to use the, the Air Force standard. So what I did is we, we paired paired the design engineer with the manufacturing engineer, and a lot of what we did was, was subcontracted out. Um, so they would go out, and then they would go out and, and do um, suppliers uh, assessments. So typically when you do a supplier assess assessment, you never you probably have never been on a supplier assessment before. Yeah, right? So to me, that's wrong, and, and, and you, you should be, uh, especially when, when you're designing something new and, and, and pairing, pairing up um, those two skill sets, along with program management and other skill sets. But that was key in that job because it's never been done before. That job alone was six different inventions um, just, just to get, get it w working. And so, so manufacturing w was key to that, and we, we made sure that we brought that in, in up front in, in, the, in the life cycle. First of all, thank you for the great conversation. This oh, is very you. instrumental. Mm -hmm. uh, my question, my name is Adolfo de Leon. Uh, one of the challenges that I have, it comes with regard with integrating new material systems and new manufacturing systems into the testing cycle of things, right? Typical machining and then whatnot, fairly known, fairly understandable to do. So I wanted to know, <clears throat> sorry, I wanted to know if you had any suggestions as to how to deal with new material system and manufacturing system that are not as easily. Understood. Yeah, so that, that's a real problem that I, I'm, I'm facing today. So um, last year we went two di two different programs that at my site uh, went through multiple weeks of testing, and the after multiple weeks of testing, um, then the program went. There was different cycles in, in the program, but essentially we didn't need that, that test data right away. We needed it six months later. We went back and and um, we couldn't find the test data. Um, so we spent weeks testing, and we, we couldn't find the data. And the reason why we couldn't find the data, it, it, it was a, a manual process. And, and literally printing out the test results and having a quality engineer going through, evaluating those test results against the requirement. So something that I'm implementing today as we speak is how do we automate that, that process? Um, and we're, we're, we're not there yet. We're, we're working towards it. And, you know, for those in the crowd that have been in, in the um, in the business for a while, you say, well, that's, that's easy. Well, it's, it's not easy when, when you've been doing it one way for the last 30 years, and, and today you have to change. And, and, and not only you're changing one program, I'm changing 40 programs, I'm changing the, the entire site. So we're going through that automation of test data. Do I have that, the right answer for you today? No, because we're trying to figure it out. And there's multiple ways to get there, but we're in the process. And my goal is by the end of this year that my factory, from a test data perspective, will be all, all automated. 
Good point. Um, I just mm -hmm. wanted to add one thing. You said you were talking about not losing your job. And I think my recommendation would be is to learning the tools that are going to be implemented to allow for the automation that Bob was just referring to, whether it's for um, VMV analysis or testing, there are always going to be some type of tool that's going to be utilized as it pertains to smart manufacturing, design, and just upskilling your skill set is my recommendation. Yeah. And learning those software uh, techniques and codes as well that goes along with operating these tools, that's something that will help you. Anybody else have any questions? Hi, uh, Adam Anderson, Northrop Grumman. Um, so everyone up here is in the defense industry, and so you're very familiar with operating in classified spaces. Um, what are some of the unique challenges with implementing these smart manufacturing techniques, um, and how do you overcome them? Yeah, so, so, I, I, so I've been with Northrop Grumman for 15 years. I spent the first 12 years um, working classified space programs, and then the last three or so years, um, uh, most of them are, are classified at a lower level or, or, or unclassified. And and prior to that, I I, I was uh, an intelligence officer in, in, in the army, and we everything was classified. The um, the nice thing about manufacturing, and we we certainly did this in space, and I do it now with my classified program. 90% of what you manufacture uh, from a hardware perspective is unclassified. It's, it, it's really the, the design, the application, the, the use case that goes behind it that's classified, but the manufacturing of the hardware itself is unclassified. So to be successful, you, you need to think about that when, when you're doing your design, because you're going to have a, a factory of, of assemblers, a factory of uh, technicians. They're not going to have a clearance. So when you're going through your design process, you really need to think about that and think about how, how can you separate the two where you can keep, keep essentially the mission classified but the hardware unclassified. And there's always exceptions. There's some parts where you're going to have to classify it, but it should be a very small subset. And we've been very successful with doing that um, at, at Northrop. And I'm sure Lucky Mars is probably, probably, probably similar. Yeah, we, uh, I don't have any direct experience with that from a classified perspective, but in a current role that I'm supporting, we do have to take into consideration that there's a classified environment and an unclassed environment, and ensuring that the same tools and the model will still operate and the platforms will operate regardless whether you're connected to another system or if it's air-gapped or isolated, but that the same capability, those features and functionality that the design engineer or the mechanical engineer may need still exist in that environment. Yeah. yeah. I know, Rick, you operate in that environment t today. I mean, yeah. Correct. Any, yeah. So, yeah. So basically that's what we try to do is what you said. We try to separate the unclassified and, and, and allow those folks who don't have clearances to be able to manufacture and build the items. But there is a slippery slope and you got to be careful not to fall yeah. into it that, yeah. so that you are protecting the data. So I guess the question that we, we wanted to ask is, are, how many students are in here or are still in, within your programs? Because we wanted to, to, to see if anybody has, has anybody participated in like robotics competitions or do you have any metaverse experience from your academic programs? Because those are some of the new innovations that are going to be coming on, on uh, in the future, in the near future. Hey, Rick, maybe before we dig into that, you want to, we have a, I think oh, a question. Oh, no, go ahead. I'm then, sorry. Yeah. Hi, my name is Sarah Bashir. I'm a systems engineer at the Azusa California campus of Northrop. Um, I had a question. I, I myself am a model-based systems engineer, typically working in uh, early development of satellite programs. Um, and I've heard the word digital twin used a lot. Um, but typically in the context of establishing digital equivalent um, throughout the systems engineering V, from early development requirements, valid, uh, verification, validation, um, as well as manufacturing, integration, test, and sustainment. So um, my question to you is, how do you see the tools you're most familiar with in smart manufacturing um, integrated with the other sort of digital twin um, efforts in other phases of the system engineering V. Yeah, so that, that's a, a problem that we're, not a problem, but a, a challenge that, that we're faced with every day. So 
When it comes to modeling, I, I look at your basic modeling as um, requirements validation, right? So you understand what requirements you have, you create a model to, to validate those requirements. So that, that's all one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is how do you remove the hardware and, and use your digital twin in, 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 in lieu, lieu of, of, of the hardware okay. itself? And that, that, that's challenging. And we, what I found is through my experience, when you're first creating your model, it, it, it's really a basic model. And, and that model becomes more advanced when there's a problem. So if, when you're going through testing and there's a problem and you, you figure out how to solve it, what I find is after you, you try to figure out what that problem is and you invest the resources and, and the people and the time, you, that model becomes more advanced to help to, really be an engineering solution versus just a, a, a comms platform um, for, for others or just a platform to, to validate your, your requirements? From my perspective, I've seen multiple twins. So it wouldn't just be a digital twin. It could apply to performance. Mm -hmm. It could apply to design. And the, the way that I've also seen it is that it should be portable. So it wouldn't be focused on one set of requirements, but that that twin could be generic and then you could, Taylor. it's portable so that it can be used in multiple instances with customizations. Digital <laughs> Haven't heard that term before. <laughs> but yeah, that that's what I've seen. So I don't know, Bob, if you had something else you want no, to No, that was it, thank okay. you. Well, the, the, I'll just address this part since this falls a little bit in my bailiwick. So on the left-hand side of the V, um, you, you've heard of efforts to try to make things more agile. So in software, that's pretty easy to do, and hardware is a little bit more difficult, and there's a, uh, usually to use a waterfall approach. Um, but there are things that are in, in works, different um, techniques to, to make it more of an agile process um, with, with your requirements portion of it. But, that's kind of separate, like Bob said, from, you know, that's, that's the design process. What they're talking about more is at the, I guess it's at the, on the right-hand side of the V, even a little bit further out. And, and one follow-up question. Do you usually find that the customer will specify which of these digital twins they want? Because in my experience, the customer does not know what they want at all. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've never had a customer no specify. No customers here. I, I've never had a customer specify. And I, I've never had a customer say, "Hey, I want to pay extra for a digital twin." Yeah. Um, they, they they want they want the, the product, and it's it's up to us to figure out how, how to make that product uh, most, as efficiently as possible. Okay. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I won't say anything, but okay. <laughs> Well, I guess I will. I'll share this. Um, while I haven't seen a customer ask specifically for a digital twin, I've seen instances where there appears to be influence from industry and certain requirements that's alluding to that type of request. So they may not come out and explicitly say, I want a digital twin, but they may ask for certain features and capabilities and want you to demonstrate certain things within an RFP or a response to a white paper. So just to go back on what we were talking about, does anyone participate in robotics con uh, competitions or do, have you seen anything within your university where metaverse or some of these other applications are, are being discussed or your professors asking for experiments or projects that you get into? No. On our campus, we have a drone team that we we compete in a drone competition. Um, but uh, Norfolk State, yeah, Norfolk State. So in Norfolk, um, but um, yeah, we had a robotics. We held a robotics uh, tournament recently, actually. But it was a uh, it was high schools uh, from all over the eastern shore coming into our university and competing. Mm -hmm. But that was interesting. But yeah, that's pretty much about it. How did you guys do? Did you win? I don't know. We were just hosting, so I was just part of the. Yeah, I was part of the team that was, you know, helping around as an as an engineering student. Yeah. I'll share a little. So for, I'll share my limited knowledge on the metaverse. 
just right from reading articles, but what I'm envisioning happening as it pertains to industry, I think Nike has created a metaverse. We know Meta has their metaverse. But if we're talking about products and services that we're delivering, I envision there being a metaverse where the customer can actually participate in that space, be able to request new capabilities, functionalities for an existing system, submit their new requirements, or if they're asking for an RFI in the metaverse, and it's going to force industry corporations such as ourselves to become part of that metaverse, and we have to figure out how we're going to operate with those standards and processes and guidelines are going to look like to ensure that it's going to be value add for both the customer and or us as a provider. That's my two cents. <laughs> okay, so does anyone else have any questions or something that you would like to share with your experience with digital twins or go, yeah, sure, I'll go, go to the mic. So they're recording this, so that's why they want you to speak in the mic. So it was a quick question. So as far as the metaverse, would you mind just going into a little more detail about what that entails and what the metaverse looks like? <laughs> Oh my goodness, I don't know if I, I'm gonna try and just be patient with me. I, again, based on my limited knowledge, I know that there, the, the metaverse will basically, the expectation is it'll complement your physical space. So today, for example, we will get a RFP delivered through email and it'll have requirements. Well, with the metaverse, instead of it being sent in an email, it'll be sent in the metaverse and you will have to access those requirements, for example, in the metaverse, be able to do your demo, for example, in the metaverse with the products and the services that we're saying that we can deliver. That, that's my limited understanding. If someone else has more knowledge, I'm willing to, to entertain that. Deidre, I think you're, you're underestimating yourself. So this, mo this morning, you, we, we were talking about it, and um, you are talking about how you, you gave an example of like if a customer wants to come on site and, and do a demo today, they're physically coming on site and, and we're doing that demo. You're, you're talking about examples where that's going to change in, in the future, and not only are they going to have access to a, a demo capability, but they're going to have access to the entire manufacturing life, life cycle. Yeah. And it's going to be all virtual um, per se. And so it's going to be a much more interactive um, experience w with the customers. And from what I find, the best programs I've ever worked on are when the customers are co-located with us. And it, it improves communications, it, it, it sets expectations, um, and a lot less meetings, more efficient. Um, this now, with, with the metaverse and, and the you're giving me this morning um, was that it's all going to be virtual and, and the customer, no matter where they're located, they're always going to be co-located with you and they're always going to be designing with you and, and, and manufacturing with you. Yeah. Yeah. So it saves on cost, it's more efficient, more cost-effective. Less opportunity for miscommunication requirements, right? Like, you told me this, you wanted that, and it's like, no, that's not what I said. Well, yes, it's here. <laughs> it's right here in the metaverse. And you, again, can you can refine it. You'll be able to iterate on it. And I think it'll also allude to being more agile, right? So you're not going to do everything in that start here and give me the product at the end, but you'll iterate on it, give them a little bit of value over a certain period of time that you've agreed to within the metaverse. So that's... That's my perspective. You might come back and say, Deirdre, you're completely wrong, but <laughs> that's the way I see it, yeah. All right, if we don't have any more questions, uh, anybody have any last questions that they would like to ask? Can you elaborate a little bit more on the training that you said that you've recommended for um, current manufacturing engineers, um, uh, current subject matter experts, and have you had more success training, um, like maybe fresh, um, uh, like college grads in these uh, digital twin tools and pairing them up with existing SMEs um, mm -hmm. or just training the existing workforce? Yeah, so, so last year we implemented in our factory um, a new training um, uh, program and it's, it's 60 days. And what it is, it's those 60 days, and we, we pay for that 
on our overhead out of our, our investment. Uh, but to me, it's worth the, the investment. And we break it down into three parts. So one part of it is, is classroom training. And that classroom training can be in-house or it can be um, by um, a third-party vendor or, or some of the other sites that Northrop <coughs> offers. So there's that classroom part. And then we have the online training um, that we do. And there's, there's multiple courses. I, I couldn't tell you every single course there is, but there's multiple courses that, that they, they take. And then the third part of it is we, um, it, it's a, like a mentor-mentee program or like an ambassador type of program where we, we uh, sign someone senior with someone junior. And again, we started that last year and it's, the investment is, is paid off uh, multiple times. Um, and that's, that was when we do our employee survey, employee feedback, that was, that was one of the biggest things is, is investing in, in that training, investing in that onboarding. Um, and it's, it's been very successful for us. Are employees producing as soon as they start the mentor, like paired? We, we so we part. Yeah, so we on the factory floor, we can we we can evaluate every single person's um, performance uh, using what we refer to as a performance factor or a PF. Uh, so we, we know exactly how efficient every single employee is. And what we do is we use those tools and we we assign the most. Efficient employees, depending on the, on the program, there's multiple factors into it, certain um, processes or assemblies that we want them to build. And then what we're seeing is you, you're not going to have uh, all your, your best employees all on one, one program where every program manager is going to ask for their best employees. So then we also use that tool not only to assign them to the task, but we also use that tool to understand what their gaps are and what, what additional training they need beyond that 60 days of onboarding. So it's, it's really, uh, we use the tool in two ways. One is to make sure that we're being efficient on programs, but two, to ensure that we're identifying gaps um, and then getting them the additional training that, that they need. Yeah, for, for us, it's very similar. I know our organization has, it's called Power Ups, and you can go out and sign up for Power Up. We also do mentoring as well. And then the other item is that for our business areas, we have um, different organizations for transformation, and we are basically having like lunch and learns and knowledge sharing to transfer that knowledge. Some of it's brand new, but where there are opportunities for us to leverage and, and share that knowledge, those are the platforms that we're using to do so. Sean Fennessy, Ford Motor Company. Uh, just wanted to understand your guys' thoughts on um, additive manufacturing, and does it have any value since we, you know, have these transformative, um, you know, uh, augmented reality and um, online and, and these immersive spaces. Yeah, so my, my factory is much different. We're, we're much, we're a lower volume, more manual. Uh, there's certainly other parts uh, of Northrop that are more in, involved in, in that and, and have adapted that. So I'm personally not as familiar with it because the type of manufacturing that, that we do in, in my factory. What was the first part of your question? I didn't hear. Well, just how do we think that since additive manufacturing is becoming a little, a little bit more um we'll say accepted within it well, at least within the automotive industry that i'm in um the fidelity of the parts are getting better you're able to machine them to you know high precision tolerances and um just the capabilities overall just like the technology is just continue to you know grow um and and, and um kind of We'll say replace some of the uh, traditional methods you may use, injection molded or you know things of that nature. So just wanted to understand what are our thoughts on um, additive manufacturing and because you can you know theoretically do a lot of the, the iterative um, rapid prototyping, development, and testing. You know similar to like what you would do you know um, in a uh, in the metaverse, right? But you could do it with parts that. Um, essentially, you have more access to, you know, versus having to wait for a long lead time, you can just 3D print them. And so I was just trying to think, like, what are, what are our thoughts on that technology as a whole? And is it something um, that you guys are even, you know, using within, um, you know, your respected industries? So 
what you're speaking is foreign language to me. <laughs> but I will try to answer you as best as I can. When you mentioned about certain things being done in the metaverse and then some things where you may be more efficient without it being the metaverse, I think from a transformation perspective as it pertains to manufacturing, it's going to be on a case-by-case -case basis. Right? I, don't, I honestly don't think you'll be able to just go all AR, VR with manufacturing. I think mm -hmm. you'll still always have to turn a widget, use a wrench, line things up from a precision perspective. And I know that we are working with our suppliers so that when we're asking for a part, that the precision is very clear. They have it down to a, a, a T so that when we get it, there is no modifications that we have to make on our end. So I don't know if that helped you, but that's what no, I can yeah. share. <laughs> hey, yep, that helps. Yeah. Thank you. Good afternoon. My name is Dr. Janice Farrar-Samani. And um, in regard to the metaverse and uh, AR, VR, we would be here all day. Um, I did actually several sessions last week. Bea, we had MetaQuake. So I highly recommend that you take a moment and go into the Bea archives and look at our sessions that we did last week here in Washington, DC. Um, my session in particular was talking talking about the integration between blockchain and metaverse. So it really speaks to the foundation, if you will, of metaverse. And it is the validation as well as the uh, encryption that is very critical that is used in smart manufacturing. Um, there were sessions also just in general principle on metaverse, which we also did. I did several. So please take your time to look at Bea because we have all the sessions you need to answer those questions. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you very much. Hey, good afternoon. Eugene Joseph. I'm a leader at Lockheed Martin. Just a couple of things. So coming back to what you mentioned, I think you were speaking more broadly about governance in the metaverse, if that's correct. Yes, you did. So, uh, and then there was a question about manu additive manufacturing. So I, I don't have a ton of experience here, but I did get a chance to go to NASA um, in Alabama. I think it was last year. And some of the things I saw with additive and generative design just blew my mind. The speed at which they were able to manufacture things with these high-powered lasers and like uh, titanium dust, I guess it was. So I, I do see a ton of potential there. I actually physically saw it. I saw like a nozzle that had been created. It was, it was pretty impressive. So that's that. And then back to the metaverse question, um, I'll speak in generalities because I haven't run any of this through, you know, Lockheed Martin, uh, release team as far as being proprietary or whatnot. But what you can start to envision when you start to think about the metaverse, and we touched on a little bit here, not there's a lot of ways we interact with our customers, one of which is through the, through the proposal process. But another concept that could be out there is how can we build a place where customers can collaborate themselves and not have to be physically located in the same place? Think about like operations center, right? You can be in one part of the world, I can be in a different part of the world, how can we merge those two worlds where we don't have to physically be together? So I know someone had a question on that, and I just, I'll say, generally speaking, you can envision a concept like that. That helps. Yeah, Hope you. that helps. Yeah, <laughs> so. thank you. Let's say uh, I'll stop hogging the mic after this. this is my last question. But it's towards your point as far as measuring efficiency for, let's say, technicians. Mm -hmm. um, I'm familiar with, like, dynamic scheduling. Mm -hmm. One of the questions that I had is, um, in my experience, if technicians knew where they could pinpoint how to increase their efficiency, let's say, in a specific asset or um, like a job that they could do, they would work those. And then you have other jobs that may not get worked because of the fact that you have efficiency matrix. Mm -hmm. Is there anything in place in order to make sure that while we're incorporating our um, smart manufacturing, we're doing it in a way that's all inclusive to all the jobs that need to be done so that way the efficiency metrics or metrics aren't being targeted or pinpointed directly. Yeah, so I, I break that down in, into two parts. So one part is, so in, in your in A factory, you'll have your, uh, I'll generalize here, but say your assemblers on one side and then your technicians on the other side. From the assemblers part, and from, from your perspective, you're an engineer, and 
what I always try to stress in our factory is from what you're doing to what the assembler's doing, it needs to be at the eighth grade reading level. So if, if your manufacturing aids are above the eighth grade reading level, that, that's wrong because you're going to run into problems and they're, they're not going to understand. And they're, they're more advanced than the eighth grade reading level. But I mean, you look at like USA Today, the newspaper, that's at the fifth grade reading level. So so think about that at the fifth grade reading level and, and, and try to create those manufacturing aids. So you keep, keep it simple, you keep the process going. So that's on the, the assembly side. On the technician side, it's all about automation of tests. So the idea is you want to try to re remove the engineering from it and allow those technicians to run those tests um, alone. And it works well for, for production programs that, that are mature, that have been around for a while. What's hard is getting that, that process started. And that's where folks like you, you come in working with the design engineers to help the automation of, of, those, of the testing. Sorry, uh, just following up on that question. So earlier you mentioned performance factors um, mm -hmm. being a way to evaluate uh, overall personal productivity. With automations, it's super easy. You've got things like Rockwell Automation. We can get data spit out for like overall equipment effectiveness, seed downtime, yield, availability, et cetera. But for the technicians specifically, it's something that I'm still trying to figure out, bringing on technicians. How do you evaluate if the technicians are being properly utilized? Like, how do you quantitatively determine if it's an availability problem, if it is the technician is stuck because things are above the eighth grade reading level, if it's a material shortage, and how do you break down the overall productivity yeah. numbers? So, so from an assembly side, it's easy, right? Because you, you have uh, workflows and, and processes, and you can measure it. From a technician, it's, it's a little bit more subjective. And what I find that what helps is those technicians they're really dependent on, on one thing, and it's that test tool that, that they're using. Um, so without that tool, um, they're really not, not effective. So it's trying to remove those factors. And so what I find in our factory, investing in those in those tools to automate it, it, it it helps. Now, how do you measure the individual against that tool? It, it, it's difficult. It comes down to, you know, how good of an engineer are, are, are you? And that's, that's somewhat subjective. But on the technician side, I, I tend to invest in, in the tools and the automation of those tools. Okay, that makes sense. I just get a follow up. So for the test side, that makes sense. For the assembly side, how does that work? The, the assembly side, so we, you know, every corporation is a little, a little different. We, we have, um, we have, uh, assembly processes and with those processes we, we establish what right looks like we, we, so your performance factor of one is is what we think it, sh it should be mm -hmm. and ev with our assemblers they, they job on and, and and job off so we know the minute they start and the minute they finish so we know how many hours it takes and then in in, in during that process we also know we have um, uh, quality inspection points per se mm -hmm. so so we we, we monitor their, their progress and the quality of their work as they're, they're building that product so it's it's much easier, much more regimented on the on the assembly side. Thank you very much. Yeah. All right, I think that's probably just about it, all the time that we have. We have some a couple of re references that you can, uh, resources that you can take a look at. Um, obviously, it sounds like, especially with the metaverse, people are still learning. There's a lot more information that probably will be coming out. Um, but uh, anyway, you can take a look at some of those resources. So thank you again. We appreciate you coming in and helping us with this session. And enjoy the rest of your Bay experience.